First Baptist Melbourne podcast, making disciples here and everywhere for the glory of God. Would you pray with me? Righteous and holy Father, as we turn now to your word, we pray that you would speak clearly to us. pray, Father, that you would help me to speak clearly of your holiness and your righteousness. Father, also that you'd help me to speak clearly of your grace and your love and your mercy for all. Lord, would you open our hearts to receive what you would say to us today? In the name of Jesus, we ask it. Amen. If you have your Bibles today, and I hope you do, would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. For those who perhaps missed last week, or if this is your first time uh, here, perhaps you may be wondering, why is this church... Uh, telling me how not to become a Christian, according to this uh, video. Perhaps uh, your response will be, I I, I thought that churches, you know, wanted people uh, to become Christians. And of course, we do, uh, and we do because we believe there is nothing better than uh, knowing Christ and walking with Him through life. Uh, But what we're doing in this series is we're responding to four of the most common objections given by people for why uh, they do not choose to become a Christian. And last week we uh, talked about the statement that's often made that Christians are narrow-minded. Narrow-minded for saying that there is only one way uh, to God. Uh, one of the things that we're doing in this series, we're making uh, copies, CDs of the message each week and making those available for free at our uh, boards as you go out to the doors of our uh, church. You're welcome to take those and to use them, to give them out as is uh, helpful. Uh, and today, as we continue in this series, we're going to be responding to the second reason that's often given. Uh, And I'm not sure that any of these four reasons that we're going to look at in this series is said as often or as loudly as this particular reason that Christians are intolerant. Now, the, the statement that Christians are intolerant is a tricky one because obviously you hear the word tolerance in there. Being intolerant is, of course, the opposite of being tolerant. But one thing that's really important to understand in this conversation is that there aren't many words in the English English language whose basic meaning has changed as much in the last 30 or 40 years as the word tolerance. The word tolerance means something radically different today than it meant for, uh, for, say, our grandparents. When our grandparents spoke about someone who was tolerant, Uh, They could be speaking about someone who had strong views about things, but who also believed that other people had a right to have strong views that disagreed with their views, and that both of them had a right to debate, to, to argue about the correctness of their viewpoint. And that's what our grandparents meant when they referred to someone as being tolerant. You and I might disagree 
Uh, We might talk about our disagreements, but we can tolerate each other's viewpoint, and we can walk away, and we can still be friends. As Voltaire famously said, I disagree with everything you say, but will defend to the death your right to say it. And that was the old meaning of tolerance. I still believe it's the more correct way of understanding what real tolerance actually is. But we might as well accept the fact that that is not what our culture means anymore uh, when they throw around the word tolerant. The new idea of tolerance is radically different. Uh, I won't get into uh, all of the philosophy that underlies this, but suffice it to say we did not get here overnight. It has to do with a field of study called epistemology, which is how we claim to know what we know. And because our epistemology has changed, because how we know what we know has changed, the definition of tolerance has changed as well. And today, as D.A. Carson says, you're more likely to be thought tolerant if you don't hold any strong views at all. Because our culture has rejected the very notion of absolute truths to begin with. And so because nobody really knows what the truth actually is, if you have strong views about something, your views are really just your opinions, and your opinions aren't any better than anybody else's. And so if you and I are talking and we have a disagreement, we express different opinions we really, neither of us, should really hold to our opinions very tenaciously. Because if we do, then we're being intolerant of the other person. It's intolerant to suggest today that somebody else might be wrong. You want to be seen as tolerant today, then you need to accept that every path and every opinion is equally right. And this idea in our society has been raised to the highest level. In fact, here is the truth. Tolerance is the greatest virtue in America today. And intolerance, therefore, is the greatest sin. Tolerance is the greatest virtue in America today, and therefore intolerance is the greatest sin. And over the past 20 years or so especially, Philosophers have been owning up to this and have been expressing this really without apology. The late philosopher Leslie Armour, who taught at the University of Ottawa, said this, Our idea is that to be a virtuous citizen is to be one who tolerates everything except intolerance. Again, for our culture, tolerance is the greatest virtue, intolerance is the greatest sin. You can be anything that you want to be, Uh, you can believe anything that you want, but you just cannot be intolerant of anything as our culture defines intolerance, or you are basically a terrible person. And before we turn to Matthew 7, I I do just need to point out that this concept of of tolerance is is flawed. And it's flawed even just from a logical point of view. I mean, first of all, what is the point of dialoguing about anything if everybody is supposed to think that everyone's views are equally right and equally valid? If it is all just opinion. If there are no facts, if there is no truth, then it really doesn't matter what anyone believes. What what is the point of 
of talking about it. If this idea is consistently followed, it trivializes all conversation. But furthermore, and Carson makes this point as well, the word tolerance is is really being badly twisted in the way that it is being used today. You, You really can't be tolerant of something that you already agree with. If I disagree with you, then I can be tolerant of you, and you can be tolerant of me. But if I already agree, if we already agree, then I'm not tolerating you. We just agree. And besides, we're both right anyway, so what is there to tolerate? In fact, the only thing that the new tolerance believes is really wrong is intolerance, and they are badly intolerant of that. They aren't very tolerant of all, at all of the one group of people that they do disagree with, and that is those who dare to question their definition of tolerance. And so the way this word is being used is very deceptive, and it's also logically incoherent. But be that as it may, our culture thinks what our culture thinks. And according to that definition of intolerance, you are intolerant if you question that definition. You're intolerant if you dare to say that anything is wrong. If you dare to say that what anybody does is sinful, then you are intolerant. And so in our culture's view, in our culture's eyes, there is probably nobody more intolerant than evangelical Christians who still claim to believe that the Bible is the Word of God. One of the ways that folks will try to reveal to us and and show to us as Christians how intolerant we are is that they will take a passage from the Bible and kind kind of throw it back at us and say, well, what about this? And there's no passage in the Bible that is used more often to do that than the one that you have your Bible open to right now, which is Matthew 7, verse 1. This verse has replaced John 3.16 as the most quoted verse in America today. Here it is, Matthew 7.1. Do not judge so that you won't be judged. Now typically the way that this verse is used is basically it's a way of someone saying, Christian, I just really need you to be quiet and not to try to tell me how to live. Don't, Don't judge me. Now, what's interesting, I don't know if you have noticed this or not, but you can be talking about uh, any other issue. You can be sitting around talking with your friends about sports, and, and you can make a comment about how terrible your quarterback is and how they really should trade him and get a better one, and, and nobody breaks out Matthew 7-1 on you, <laughs> right? No, nobody says, you know, why are you being so, so judgmental about our quarterback, man? You shouldn't be doing that. Don't judge. You can talk about politics. You can say that I don't like this particular politician. Everybody may not agree with you, but they probably aren't going to break out Matthew 7-1 on you. It's expected that you'll make judgments about politics and, and politicians. But in our culture, if you have the gall to actually say that something is sinful, that something is immoral, then you're likely to get a can of Matthew 7-1 opened up on you. And you're going to hear, who are you to judge? After all, didn't Jesus say, judge not that ye be not judged? And ironically, that verse is usually quoted in a very judgmental kind of way. (laughs) But the most important thing when 
quoting any verse is to understand what that verse actually means in its context. What does judge not mean? Well, first off, it doesn't mean that we should stop making judgments about what is right and what is wrong. That's, that's not what Jesus meant when he said, judge not. He, he didn't mean that we're not allowed to see something that's wrong and say that's wrong. That we're not allowed to call sin, sin. And I, and I think our culture is very confused about that. And that, that confusion is, is, is bleeding its way into the church of Jesus Christ as well. I hear Christians very often misquoting this verse as a, as a grenade against other Christians who would dare to call sin sin. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. He doesn't mean that we're supposed to turn a blind eye to sin or pretend that sin doesn't exist. He didn't mean that Christians are never supposed to point out sin, that we're never supposed to give correction, or that we're never supposed to receive correction. In fact, in the next few verses, in verses 2 through 5, he tells us how to do exactly that. Look at verse 2. For with the judgment you use, you will be judged And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but don't notice the log or the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and look, there's a log in your eye. Hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And the illustration that Jesus is using here is pretty comical. He's talking about a person who's trying to get this little speck of sawdust out of his friend's eye, but what he didn't realize is that he has a two-by-four sticking out of his own eye. And he's not going to see very well in order to get that speck out of his friend's eye until he does something about the lumber that is coming out of his own. And that's a very important point, and we're going to come back to that later. But there should be a humility A humility in the way that we as believers talk about sin because as Christians we should see ourselves the way that the Apostle Paul saw himself as the chief of all sinners. We are the ones with the plank in our eye. And it is only by God's grace that that plank ever came out. But for now, here's the point that I want us to see. Jesus didn't say that nothing that anybody does is wrong. In fact, he says the opposite. He says that there are planks in our eyes, and there are specks in our eyes, that there are wrong things going on. And as you continue to read on in the passage, he instructs us to make judgments about those things that are right and those things that are wrong. In fact, in in verse 6, he tells us not to give what is holy to the dogs or to toss our pearls before pigs. Well, how are we supposed to, to know who those people are if we never make any judgments? If you look down in verse 15, he tells us to beware of false prophets. And then in verse 16, he tells us that you will know them by their fruits. Now, what is Jesus telling us to do? He's telling us to to watch the lifestyle of a person who claims to be a teacher and to see if their lifestyle matches up with their teaching. And if it doesn't, you will know them by their fruits. That person is a false teacher. He's instructing us to make judgments. And so even in the rest of this chapter, in Matthew 7, much less the rest of the Bible, 
The idea that judge not means that you're not allowed to call anything sinful and that you're not allowed to make any judgments about anything makes absolutely no sense. The context of this passage and the context of the rest of the Bible does not allow that interpretation no matter how bad our culture wants this verse to mean what it thinks it means. But if it doesn't mean that, if it doesn't mean that we're not supposed to make judgments, well, then what does it mean? Well, it does mean this. It does mean that we should stop being judgmental people. Now, there is something we need to admit. And that is that sometimes when the world says that Christians are intolerant of other people, and sometimes when the world says that Christians are, are judgmental of other people, sometimes... They're exactly right. <laughs> because sometimes we are. You know, there, there is a difference between making judgments about right and wrong and being judgmental. And like we just said, we are supposed to make judgments about right and wrong. And so when our culture calls us intolerant or judgmental for just doing that, well, then they are the ones that are in the wrong according to Jesus. But we aren't supposed to be judgmental towards other people. And so when people call us judgmental because we're actually being judgmental, well, then we are the ones that are in the wrong. Now, what does it mean to be judgmental? I think it means a lot of different things. I think we're judgmental when we claim to be able to make a final judgment about someone else's soul. We're not God. We only see what we see. He is the one who makes a final judgment about all of us. We're also judgmental when we're harsh with people, when we demean other people, when we belittle people, when we mock other people. We're judgmental when we are self-righteous people, when we act like our sin is, is better than somebody else's sin. We're judgmental when we do that, and as a Christian, we have no right to do that because we're not better than anyone else. The Bible says is that we are sinners as much as anyone else is a sinner. The only difference is that we've been forgiven by an amazing, loving, gracious Father. So when we look down on other people, or when we act like we're mad at the world for how sinful they are, we have forgotten that it was God's grace that changed our lives. And that is being judgmental. And that is what Jesus is condemning here when he tells us not to judge. And so again, church, we need to own up to the fact that sometimes when our culture tells us we're intolerant and we're judgmental, it's because we really are. And if we really are, then we need to repent of that. Because it means that we're not giving the world a true picture of the grace of God. But with that said, as we've seen, it's not intolerant to call sin sin. It's, it's not intolerant to say what is right and what is wrong. God has told us what is right and what is wrong. And what we don't want to happen is we don't want to get swept up in our culture's pursuit of tolerance at all costs where we begin to deceive ourselves and we begin to deceive those around us by saying things are okay that God says are not okay. One of the clearest passages in the Bible about that is over in 1 Corinthians Six. If you turn to the right in your Bibles, you'll find that passage, 1 Corinthians 6. <coughs> Listen to these words. 
1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11. Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, or anyone practicing homosexuality, no thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. And some of you used to be like this, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And so with the time that I have left, I want us to see three very important truths in these three verses. And here is the first truth. God is intolerant of many things that our culture tolerates and even celebrates. Our God is intolerant of many things that our culture tolerates and even celebrates. Paul starts out by saying, don't you know, which implies that we should know this already. And then he says, don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom. The the word unrighteous there is another way of of referring to unbelievers, those who don't know Christ. Of course, the Bible says in Romans 3 that none of us are righteous. None is righteous. No, not, not one. As we'll talk about in a few minutes, the only way that any of us can become righteous is by surrendering our life to Jesus Christ, where his righteousness, his perfect record of righteous living is applied to our account. But this passage is referring to those who have never done that, those who have never turned in faith to Christ. And so he refers to them as the unrighteous. And he says here that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom. It means that they're not spiritually a part of God's kingdom now, and they won't be physically a part of God's kingdom when his kingdom comes in all its fullness. And then he says here, don't be deceived about this. And there is a lot of deception about this in our culture today. He says, don't be deceived. Don't think that you can embrace a sinful lifestyle, whatever that lifestyle entails, and think that you're still going to heaven. We can either have our sin or we can have Jesus, but we cannot have both. And we shouldn't deceive ourselves into thinking that we can have both. And then Paul rattles off a list of sinful lifestyles that are descriptive of people who are not saved, people who are not headed for heaven. This is not an all-inclusive list, of course. There are many things that Paul could have included here that he did not include. And there's many items on this list that we're going to talk about in just a few moments. But there's one item on this list that is under fire today more than any other. And it's there at the end of verse 9. One of the items on this list, he says, or anyone practicing homosexuality. And, and, and I really don't think that I can talk today about what the Word of God says about intolerance without talking at least a little bit about this issue. Now, Homosexuality isn't, of course, the only issue that we as Christians are seen as being intolerant about. We're seen as being intolerant about a lot of other things, about marriage and about women's roles and about abortion and about gender issues. And the list goes on and on and on. But very often, 
lurking just behind the accusation that Christians are intolerant is this accusation. Why are you Christians so homophobic? Again, it's, it's not the whole reason, but a lot of the reason that Christians are thought to be intolerant is because of our views on homosexuality. And I think that it goes almost without saying that our culture has largely accepted homosexuality as an acceptable alternative lifestyle. Not only has it been accepted, but it is also regularly celebrated with parades and gay pride days. There have even been rainbow lights projected up onto the White House in celebration of homosexuality. As of 2015, gay marriage is now the accepted law of the land. And things have changed so quickly that in many industries today, particularly in the entertainment industry, if you were to dare to speak out against homosexuality as sinful, you would be quickly accused of bigoted, homophobic hate speech, and you would be forced to publicly apologize or more likely to lose your job entirely. And it isn't just outside the church that this is the case, it's also inside the church. There are many churches and even whole denominations of churches that have embraced homosexuality as perfectly acceptable. And so many churches are doing exactly what Paul talks about at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 5, the chapter right before we started reading. They're condoning sexual sin and instead of mourning over that sin, they're actually proud of themselves for being so tolerant and for being so loving according to the world's definition of love. And so in these churches practicing active homosexuals are invited into the membership of the churches without any call for repentance. In many denominations today, those who openly practice homosexuality are being ordained to be those churches' pastors and priests, despite the fact that this passage says that those who practice homosexuality and don't repent of it will not even be in heaven. And so it is against this cultural backdrop, both inside the church and outside the church, that we as conservative evangelical Christians say what we say about homosexuality, knowing that we will be criticized by virtually everyone else for saying it, and that we will be seen as homophobic. As one writer put it, the term homophobic has served the pro-gay movement very well. Because, of course, the term includes the word Phobia. The word phobia. So the idea is that if you disagree with homosexuality, that you have a phobia, that you have something wrong with you. And so when someone calls you homophobic, you could respond by saying, I'm not afraid of homosexuals, but I am afraid for them. And I am afraid for them because of what it says here, that anyone practicing homosexuality will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now there are a lot of those who claim to be Christian Bible scholars who have argued that Paul really didn't mean what it sounds like he means when he wrote this. 
They argue that Paul didn't really mean what it sounds like he said in Romans chapter 1 or in any of the other places that he talks about it, that Leviticus really doesn't mean what Leviticus says either. But, but the, the reality is we cannot rescue the Bible from saying what the Bible says. Everywhere the Bible talks about homosexuality in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, it is universally condemned. The Bible does not have one good thing to say about homosexual desire or homosexual practice. And there just is no way around that. And of course, for the person who doesn't claim to believe the Bible, that makes no difference at all. And so they will turn to other arguments to defend why homosexuality is perfectly normal and perfectly acceptable. And probably the argument that has caught on more than any other is is to say this, well, I was born this way, God made me this way, and so how can it be wrong? And the way that our society looks at it, being against homosexuality is no different today than being a racist. Because in the same way that the color of a person's skin cannot be changed, if a person is is born homosexual, then that's their identity. Then that's who they are. And and so who are we to say that that is wrong? But that's where we need to challenge the premise of that argument. I'm not denying that there is a biological component to same-sex attraction. There undoubtedly is. But it is not 100% biologically predetermined. If it were, then when they do studies on identical twins, the correlation would be 100%. But the correlation is actually very low in those studies. And that's why even the American Psychiatric Association admits that they do not know all the factors that leads to a person identifying as homosexual. So again, there is a biological factor, but it is not biologically predetermined. We are all a mixture of our nature and our nurture and our own choices as well. And the fact that you are born with a propensity to something does not mean that you have to walk down that path and embrace that as your identity. The Bible teaches us that we are all fallen. Every single one of us, we all live in a fallen world, we all inherited a sinful nature, and that affects all of us in different ways. It affects us in our souls, and it affects us in our bodies. And that bent towards sin will show up in different ways in different ones of us. It might show up in some and express itself in heterosexual lust or pride or greed. And it might show up in others as homosexual lust. The the question is not that we have a propensity towards sin. We do. The question is, what are we going to do with it? And of course, what our society says to do with homosexual attraction when it is discovered is to embrace it. To embrace it as your identity. To embrace it as your lifestyle. Because there's absolutely nothing wrong with it, our culture says. But the God who made us clearly says that there is something wrong with it. That it may seem natural and it may feel natural, but that it's not natural. It's actually not God's best for us. And it's not according to God's original good design. You know, there may be and there almost certainly are several here today in this room who wrestle, who struggle with same-sex attraction. And when you first discovered it, it probably was not a welcome discovery. 
And I, I want you to know and I want you to hear today that this church is a place where you can be open about those struggles. And you can come to one of your pastors, you can come to your small group leader, and, and you will find a place where you are not judged or shamed, but a place where you are loved and accepted and supported as you seek to live a life that pleases God. And there are Christian ministries out there that can be a help to you where you will encounter others who are living with that same struggle and yet are living to please Christ. I'm not saying that it will be easy, it almost certainly will not be easy. It is true that there are some believers who have struggled with same-sex attraction who give it over to the Lord and they experience such a change and such a transformation even in their desires that they are able to marry someone of the opposite sex and enjoy a satisfying and healthy marriage relationship that honors God. But for others, that will not be the case. And for some some have found out that the only way that they're able to live a life that pleases God with same-sex attraction is to live a life of celibacy. And yet what they have discovered and what they give testimony of is that they have discovered that their identity is not, as the world says, in their sexuality, but their identity is in something far deeper than that. And that we are able as followers of Christ to find our identity in Christ. And even though we are all broken people in one way or another, we are able to give glory to the one, the only one who can make us all whole. Church, let the world call us whatever names it wants to call us. Let the world call us homophobic. Let the world call us intolerant. What our gay friends need is not another person to be tolerant with them. What our gay friends need is to have one friend in their life who would dare to tell them the truth. One friend in their life who would tell them that you want for them a better life than anything that a homosexual lifestyle can bring them. A life that can only be found in knowing Jesus Christ. The first truth is that God is intolerant of many things that our culture tolerates. Here's the second truth. Christ followers. Any of us in this room, we should not tolerate any sin especially the sin that we find in our own lives. God does not tolerate sin. We've seen that. God hates sin because he is holy and he is righteous. And so he hates sin wherever he finds it. And so as, as followers of Christ, we should not tolerate sin either. We should hate sin wherever we find it. But like Jesus said in Matthew 7, we should be first concerned about the plank in our own eye before we worry about the speck in our brother's eye. We should especially not tolerate sin in our own lives. We singled out homosexuality a moment ago because that's a hot topic in our culture today, but that's, of course, not the only sin that Paul mentions in verses 9 through 10. He lists quite a few others. And what he says is that all of these, that if these things characterize our lives, that we will not inherit the kingdom of God. Listen again to this list. He says, don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, anyone practicing homosexuality, no thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit 
God's kingdom. Of course, this doesn't mean that after you are truly saved and born again, that if you fall in any of these areas, that that means that you're lost and on your way to hell. A Christian can fall in any of these areas that we just mentioned. But there is a difference between a Christian who falls into sin and who hates it and someone who embraces this sin, any of these sins, as their lifestyle and even celebrates it and thinks that any of these lifestyles goes hand in hand with their profession to be a Christian. Those two things are radically different. Paul starts out by talking about sexually immoral people. The older translations use the word fornicators here. Refers to anyone who has sex outside of marriage, but especially those who are unmarried. And unfortunately, this is becoming more and more common even in the church. Couples who are hooking up, who are shacking up, who are living together before marriage. And and friend, I want you to hear me. If you claim to be a Christian, but you are living right now with your boyfriend or with your girlfriend, or you are sleeping together before the covenant of marriage has taken place, then, then with all the love in my heart, you need to hear this. You need to repent of that. Because that lifestyle does not go hand in hand with your profession to be a follower of Jesus Christ. It just doesn't. And so perhaps for you, what God would say to you today is that relationship really isn't a godly relationship to start with. And that relationship just needs to be over like this afternoon. But there's others of you that maybe what God would say to you is that he is calling you to to get married. That is what he has for you. But if that's the case, then I would just plead with you that that you would separate for a period of time, that you would demonstrate repentance in that area of your life. You can't change anything that's happened up to today, but you can change from today until the day that you get married. And so from this day until the day that you get married, that you would repent, that you would say to God, I want this relationship to honor you. And so as of today, I'm moving out. We're going to honor you in our relationship because of what your word says is best. Paul talks next about idolaters, those who worship idols. We do that when we put anything above God or ahead of God in our hearts and in our lives. And so ask God right now, is there anything in my life, God, that is higher than you? And if there is, to give it over to him. Next, Paul mentions adulterers. Those who adulterate their wedding bond, their wedding vow that they have with their husband or with their wife by sleeping with someone who is not their spouse. And the Lord has called us to be sexually faithful because he knows what our culture has forgotten, that even though forbidden fruit may be alluring, that there is a sweetness and there is an intimacy and there is a oneness that is found in a God-honoring, sexually faithful marriage relationship that cannot be found in the arms of another. In verse 10, Paul turns his attention to our attitude towards material things. He speaks about thieves, greedy persons, those who are swindlers at the end of this verse. All of these things have one thing in common. That is that in our hearts, we're not satisfied with God and we're not satisfied with what God has given us. On the part of those who are covetous, that means you want other things. On the part of those who are thieves or swindlers, it means you actually reach out and take it. But either way, what God is saying here is that that heartbeat, the heart of someone who is never content, never content with what God has given you, is not the heart that is inside of a born-again Christian. And lastly, Paul mentions drunkards and revilers. People who revile, people who abuse other people physically, verbally. 
And often those two things go together, don't they? Someone who gets drunk and then they verbally abuse someone or physically abuse someone. God says people who behave like that on a regular basis as a pattern of their lives are showing, they're demonstrating that they have not been redeemed. That no matter what they say, that they don't know God. And if they did, their lifestyle would not be characterized by drunkenness. I know someone will say, well, well, Pastor Scott, what about salvation by grace? And it's not salvation by works. And amen, that's absolutely right. We are not saved by the things that we do, and we're not saved by the things that we don't do. We are saved by grace. Sobriety will not save you. Only the Savior will save you. But if the Savior has saved you, then you're going to be growing in sobriety. And you're going to be growing in all of these other areas that we've talked about as well. And when you take this whole list as a whole, the bottom line is this. If you are really a Christian and you're not self-deceived about it, and again, he warns us about self-deception here, but if you're not self-deceived about it, then you're not going to be comfortable embracing a sinful lifestyle on the one hand and calling yourself a Christian on the other. Because we know, or Paul says that we should know, that it doesn't work that way. That when Jesus really comes into your heart, he begins to change things. Begins to change us. I'm not being intolerant to tell you these things. I want to tell you these things because I love you enough to tell you the truth. Because I don't want you to go through your life thinking that you're okay and thinking that you can live however you want to live and that somehow in the end God is just going to accept you. Because if you go through your life thinking that, then you'll never actually turn to the one person who can save you and who can change you. But I hope if you don't hear anything else, you will hear this. If you will turn to him, there is hope for all of us. And the beautiful truth of verse 11 is this. There isn't any sinner from any background that God cannot save and transform. Look at that verse with me, verse 11. And some of you used to be like this, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I love, love, love this verse. Up until this point in the passage, you might think that all of the people who are in those categories that are mentioned in verses 9 and 10 will not be with us in heaven. It's quite to the contrary. What verse 11 says is that there will be people in all of those categories in verses 9 and 10 who will be with us one day in heaven. Paul is writing to a church, a real church like our church that met in the city of Corinth. And he's saying to them, you guys know this. Some of you used to be like this. Some of you could have put your name next to every one of these things that I just talked about. But you're not that way anymore by the grace of God. And then he says three times, but you were. He's drawing the contrast, but you were washed but you were sanctified, but you were justified. There has been a radical change that has happened in your life, and it's happened in the name of Jesus Christ, and it's happened by the Spirit of our God. And that's true for every single one of us in this room. 
Every single one of us in this room, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're an ex-sinner of some type. You might be an ex-drug user, an ex-thief, an ex-homosexual, an ex-drunkard, an ex-adulterer. I don't know what ex you are. We all have a lot of ex-somethings after our name. But if you know Christ, you've been washed and you've been sanctified and you've been justified in the name of Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. And it's not just true for those of us in this room that already know Christ. This is true for anyone in this room who today will turn to Christ. If anyone will turn from our sin and turn to Jesus, we will be washed. That means that the stain and the guilt of sin will be washed away and he'll give us a brand new life. If we turn to Jesus, we will be sanctified. There will be a break from sin that happens in our life. The controlling power of sin over our lives will be defeated. Our lives will be dedicated to God. And then if we turn in faith to Jesus, we will be justified. That means that in God's courtroom, his sentence has already been given. Even though we are guilty because of our sin, he has said over our lives, you are not not guilty, and you're not guilty forever and ever and ever. Now, how can that be the case? We, we've said that God is a holy, righteous God who hates sin. He doesn't tolerate sin. He hates sin. He hates it anywhere that he finds it. And so God is not tolerant of our sin at all. In the red-hot heat of God's holiness, he hates our sin with a perfect hatred. And so how can it be that this holy, righteous God is able to accept us and justify us and say over our lives that we are not guilty? It's possible because of what Jesus Christ has already done. It's possible because when Jesus Christ hung on the cross, we can praise God for that. When he hung on the cross, my sin and your sin was laid on his shoulders and it has already been paid for. We can't add to it. There's nothing we can do to earn it. It's already done. And then on the third day, he rose Again, and so just like has already happened for hundreds and hundreds of people in this room, if today you would come to him and you would turn to him and you would put your life in his hands, then everything that verse 11 talks about will happen in a moment in your life. You'll be washed. You'll be sanctified. You'll be justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I want to ask you to stand with me. And Father, I pray right now for anyone in this room that doesn't yet know you, that today they would turn from sin. Today they would realize that on our own, none of us are okay. None of us are going to be okay. The only way we can be okay before you, Father, is because of Jesus. And so I pray today you would bring that reality of our brokenness, of our need for a Savior to someone's heart in this room. But at the same time, Father, they would see today the hope that is found, the love that is found in you. And they would come with open arms and an open heart to receive the grace that you want to pour out in their life right now in Jesus' name. Amen.